0: morning, everyone. Great to have you guys. This is part three, as Preston mentioned, of our continuing series, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire. We're going to press pause next Sunday morning on this series. My son Evan's going to be here. He's going to speak in both of our services. So, Lana and I, uh, we're excited to have them in for a week, and I'll be picking them up on Tuesday. So, you'll be able to uh, hear from him next Sunday morning. Lana, my wife, and I purchased our current home in 2005. It was our first home purchase. For many years prior, we lived in church-provided homes, so we didn't own many pieces of furniture or appliances. So Len and I drove to Virginia and looked at different couches and beds and tables and chairs, and we found a large and sturdy dining room table, and we needed it We had three kids, and we wanted to provide a place where all five of us could sit down at one time, plus if they brought any of their friends over or we had family members uh, visiting with us, we could all sit down and enjoy a meal together. Soon the table was delivered, and I positioned it and pushed up the chairs around it, and I thought, this looks really good. We were proud of it. Little did I know the table would rarely be used for large gatherings of families and friends. Instead, it became... The catch-all for our three kids, their book bags and science projects and manicures and painting school supplies and clothes. And in between all of that, we would move things and fold things and position things and have a meal. Eventually, the table got nicks and bangs and scratches and stains. I became upset when Ashlyn or Cameron would spill makeup or nail polish on it or when Evan would throw his book bag on it after school and it would scratch the surface I wasn't always kind when they messed it up. I wanted to protect my investment. I wanted to keep it nice and shiny. Needless to say, we had a few raised voices and energetic discussions about the table. About a year ago, the house was quiet. I sat down at the table to work on a class assignment and looked at the nicks and bangs and scratches and stains. They speak to me differently now than they did then. Then... They were marks of careless children. Now they are memories of life and love. Then they were scratches made by kids who didn't appreciate the value of furniture. Now they are reflections of personalities. Then I thought we might have to purchase a new table. Now I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, if I could return to that season of life and sit down with Scott, I'd do my best to convince him to slow down, to look around, to notice life, to breathe in each moment deeply, to refuse to rush anything but instead harness every second and ride every wave, go with the flow and watch every moment as if I'm looking at a painting by a master artist. I do my best to help him find joy and contentment in the little, almost imperceptible things of life. For years, between the ages of 30 and 47, my mind was running toward the next big thing, and I was often irritable, dissatisfied, and displeased. I picked everything apart. I was critical, temperamental, emotional, And although I was surrounded by people who loved me, I seldom felt accepted. And I could provide many reasons as to how I became that way. And here's one, and trust me, this is only one of many reasons. I bought into the myth of more is better. Faster is more fun, and success equals significance. And, hey, rest when you're dead, and there's no better time than the present. And don't get me wrong, I mean, laziness isn't godly, and and success requires hard work. So I'm not talking about refusing to set goals or uh, push yourself or achieve greatness. I'm talking about what John Orkberg refers to as hurry sickness. I'm talking about what I refer to as success syndrome. I'm talking about being in a constant time traveler state of mind, always living in tomorrow. About being more concerned about what's out there rather than what's in here, who's for me, rather than who's around me. You see, when you're more interested with impressing strangers than impacting family, aren't you tired of running and spinning and, and investing energy in things that don't last? Maybe not. I mean, maybe maybe you haven't lived long enough. Maybe you haven't made poor decisions because you were too busy to be present for your family. Maybe you figured it out. I hope so. But as transparently as I know how to say it, I today long for simplicity and quietness and slowness and depth and authenticity and honesty. I'd much rather gather with you around a table than stare at you from a stage. Brendan Burchard describes how many of us feel. He writes, we have stopped sensing the stillness, the stunning fullness and beauty and divine perfection of the moment. Most barrel through life, unaware of their senses and surroundings, deaf and blind to the magic of this very moment. We are not supposed to miss it all, this life, but we do. All frazzled, stressed, and stripped. So many moments blurred by speed and worry and panic, all stacking onto hectic days, all creating the catastrophe of an unexperienced, joyless joyous life. Because of my many years of need for speed, I miss countless opportunities to enjoy life, to enjoy friends and family and quietness and reflection. I regret, I regret giving into the hurry sickness and the success syndrome floating around everywhere. I regret defining people as being in the way of my life rather than seeing people as being the heart beauty of my life. I miss so much because I was chasing so much. Listen carefully. Something is never more important than someone. Something is never more important than someone, never. Many of you are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan Written for us, presented to us in Luke 10. If you've been a part of Forest Park for a number of years, you've probably heard me refer to this story many times. I've walked through it. I've taught through it. Some of you are not familiar with the story, or you need a little refresher. So let's take a look at it. I'm simply going to read the story. No comments. I'm just going to read the story. This is not the heart of the message. It's just part of it. But I want you to see something very interesting in this story. Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story. He says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now, it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan who was on a journey came to where the man was, but when he saw him, He was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. Jesus then asks, what do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves. Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Most of us, especially if you consider yourself a Christian or a decent human being, when you encounter a story like this, read this story, you would probably say, how sad these religious people walk by this man and refuse to help him. I I think I would stop and help the poor man if I could. And I I think you would be right to say that. I think you would help the poor man if you could. But that's the caveat, if you could, isn't it? That's the dilemma, the challenge, the catch-22. I would help if I could. Let's think through that, okay? What do you mean by if I could? What do you think most people mean by if they could? Now, let's remove the obvious challenges, safety. Let's not make this story too, too, too far-fetched. Let's kind of bring it home. So let, don't think about this story like you're by yourself in the middle of the night in an unknown area where crime is rampant. And you would say, well, I wouldn't stop then. Well, we understand that. Let, let's kind of move that out of the way. It's, don't think of the story like you're in a hurricane or a blizzard and you have no coat and you're alone with your two-month-old baby. Okay. Of course, we might not stop in that situation. Let's get rid of the obvious problems that might stop you from assisting this man. What do you think would be the reason you would be like the priest and the Levite and walk on by, or you would be like the Samaritan and stop and assist? I'm not implying that I know what would cause you to stop or walk on by, but I will share with you what some research review. The original study was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Here's a summary of a very interesting study about this very question. What causes some people to stop and some people not to stop? Let me just read to you the study. Social psychologists John Darley and Daniel Batson wanted to know why people help in some situations and not others. They decided to study one allegedly charitable group seminary students training to become priests. Great group to study. The researchers asked each of the 67 seminary students to deliver a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan, a Bible story about helping strangers in need. So they assigned these 67 seminary students to study the story and prepare a sermon and preach the story of the Good Samaritan. The researchers then randomly assigned the students to one of two groups. In the first group, they told them, oh, you need to hurry across campus. They're waiting for you to preach your sermon. You better get a move on. To the other group, they told them, it'll be a few minutes before they're ready for you, but you might want to go ahead and head on over. Each student Walked alone to the building where they were going to deliver the sermon. On the way, the student encountered a man slumped in a doorway with his eyes closed, coughing and moaning, clearly in distress. From afar, researchers watched to see what the seminary students would do. Would the seminary students stop to help the stranger in need on their way to preach a sermon about helping strangers? in need. Darley and Batson found that only 10% of the seminary students in the hurried group, you better hurry up and get across campus, they're waiting on you, only 10% of them stopped to help the man. In comparison, 63% of the participants in the unhurried group stopped. In other words, being in a hurry Can lead even a seminary student with the Good Samaritan on his mind to ignore a person in distress. The writer of the article says this When pressed for time, people must choose between helping and meeting other goals. But when people are not hurried, They can pursue multiple goals. In other words, in order of importance. In addition, people with time to spare can broaden their attention and notice more details about their environment. So here's the conclusion from my perspective. If you had the time to help, you would help. If you had no time, you wouldn't help. We like to think it's more complicated. Some people are more compassionate. Some people are not as compassionate. I think I'm more compassionate than the average person. Study shows if you live your life in a hurry, you probably would walk on by. If you have more time to give, you probably would stop. You see, when I'm in a hurry, I miss what's most important. This click. <laughs> when I'm in a hurry, I miss what's most important i don't see anywhere within the gospel writings where jesus was in a hurry he appears calm calculated thoughtful and deliberate he never appears rushed or frayed because he couldn't get everything done in time even when people needed his attention he doesn't appear to be in a hurry to meet their need in fact there are times when i'm reading the gospels i think he should have been in a hurry for instance, when his friend Lazarus was sick and word was delivered to Jesus that he needed to come and heal him, Jesus delayed his journey and Lazarus died. Then Jesus arrived. I don't know why Jesus didn't rush. I'm not sure why he waited in that particular, re, uh, uh, particular situation, but I do know this. He never hurried. There is not one verse or story or even a hint that Jesus ran to do something or had to apologize because he didn't get somewhere in time. Peace and calmness and serenity marked the life of Jesus. The insightful philosopher and professor Dallas Willard was asked, what one word would he use to describe Jesus? He answered, "Relax." And I think that is why he was able to meet the needs of so many people. He walked slowly through the crowds. He listened to stories. He looked people in the eye. He cared because he was involved. Now, there are many reasons Jesus was unhurried. I don't presume to know a fraction of why. But I'm confident of one reason he never hurried. Pastor and author Lance Witt tells of a pastor friend of his who was diagnosed with a precancerous tumor. It was serious enough that his colon was removed and he went through a few months of treatment. It was a defining moment in this pastor's life and as a result, he was forced to take a leave of absence. When it was time for him to return to ministry, Lance and his friend went to lunch together and Lance said he was anxious to ask his friend a question. So after catching up and chit-chatting for a while, Lance finally said, so... You just went through a life-changing event, and you've had a lot of time to think and reflect. So what did God show you during your time away? And with no hesitation whatsoever, his pastor friend fired back. Hurry destroys relationships. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. Hurry destroys relationships. Jesus refused to be in a hurry because hurry destroys relationships. You can't communicate when you're in a hurry. You can't relax when you're in a hurry. You can't provide quality time in a hurry. It's easy to be irritable and impatient when you're in a hurry, and it is difficult to be intimate with anyone in a hurry. Love and hurry incompatible. Oil and water. And Jesus knew this. It's why Jesus never rushed. He never blew people off. There is no recording of Jesus ever saying, "Well, well, I can't help you right now. I don't have time. In fact, one time the disciples tried to shrug off a group of children because they thought Jesus was too busy or he was too important to be bothered by kids, and Jesus actually rebuked them for it. Mark 10, people were bringing children to Jesus so that Jesus would bless them. But the disciples scolded them, scolded the children. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry. Rarely do you see Jesus become angry. But in this situation, he grew angry. And he said to them, allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children, and bless them. Listen to me very carefully. Jesus lived at the speed of slow enough to play with children. Jesus lived at the speed of slow enough to play With children, slow enough to engage in debates with religious leaders, slow enough to worship at the temple, slow enough to spend nights alone in prayer, slow enough to go fishing with his friends, to eat with known sinners, to accept invitations to parties, to attend weddings, to defend adulterers, to interrupt funerals, to answer questions, to explain confusing passages of the Old Testament, to encourage the discouraged, to heal the wounded, to lift the downcast. Cast and to endear himself to thousands of people. He accomplished more in three and a half years than we do in 25, yet he was never in a hurry. He was never rushed. He never seemed annoyed or irritated. He never allowed his schedule to run his life. Listen carefully to this next part. French philosopher Simon, uh, Simone Weil said, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. That's what Jesus gave people, attention. Pure, uninterrupted attention. People crave attention. Someone who sees them, really sees where they are, hears their heart, identifies with them, feels with them. People don't want money or ideas or advice as much as they want attention. And we do not give people nearly enough attention. We give advice, we give advice by the truckloads. We laugh at their jokes, we nod in agreement, but we rarely give attention. To give attention is to be fully present, 100% there in the moment, looking them in the eye, feeling as they feel, hearing their story. To give attention, we enter into the other person's world. We feel what they feel, care about what they care about, experience life within their skin. We don't do this because giving attention requires skill. and Most of us don't know how to give attention because most of us were never taught Instead, we were taught life is about us, our success, our name, our income, our family, our comfort. We were taught that the only way to make it in this life is to outwork and outplay and outpace the guy beside us. Because if he gets ahead of us, he'll get there before we do. He'll get what we want. So we've got to go faster than him. We've got to beat him down, move him out of the way. There is only one person to get first place, and it's going to be me. There's only so much of the pie to go around, and I'm gonna get my piece of the pie first. So, we grow up in a world that values hurry. We've been told over and over again successful people are busy people. Busy people get things done. If you're not busy, you're lazy, and as a result, we do not know how to sit quietly. We are addicted to constant noise, activity buzzes in the background of our lives indefinitely. We just don't know how to give attention to others because we were never taught how. Giving attention also is expensive. To give someone attention requires time and emotion. Two indulgences we rarely have enough to spare. Attention demands sitting with people, feeling with people, crying with people, laughing with people, listening, learning, and most of all, suffering with people. How can we do that when we barely have enough time to eat? Look at your calendar. Look at your schedule. Look at your to-do list. Where is there time to sit with hurting people? Where is there time for someone who needs your undivided attention? Now, we're going to get a little tight in here, okay? If you're anything like me, you hear a message like this, here's what you would say, because I've said it a hundred other times. You know, you're right. I am a little too busy. I need to slow down. And I want to, but I'm not sure how. Maybe after this season, I'll figure out a way. If I can just get through this project, if I can just get through the winter, if I can just get through the summer, if I can just get through the fall, if I can just get through this part of my life, then I will slow down. No, you won't. No, you won't. You will not slow down, and I'll tell you how I know. You've said this before, and you didn't slow down. In fact, you've said it to yourself over and over and over again. In fact, you've made New Year's resolutions. This year, I'm going to slow down. This year, I'm going to be more about my family. This year, I'm going to invest in my marriage. This year, I'm going to spend more time with my kids. This year, we're going to sit around the table and eat together. And you haven't done it yet. You don't know any other way. You see, you've developed a habit of busyness. You don't know any other way to live. The other reason I know you won't is because you enjoy being busy. You act like you don't, but you do. Busyness brings you a sense of pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment. If this were not true, you would not be so busy. You see, on the whole, we humans do not do what makes us healthy. That is a myth. We do not do what makes us healthy. We do what makes us happy. And staying busy brings a sense of pleasure and happiness to us. If it didn't, we would have stopped yesterday. So if you want to change, you can't merely tweak your schedule. In other words, if if you want to slow your pace, if you want to really learn how to enjoy every moment and see and identify with the people around you and invest in what is close, you've got to take some radical steps. You cannot just tweak it. Let me give you a big idea, and then at the end of this message, I'm going to give you some very practical steps for you to take. Here's a big idea. During our singing today, we sang the song, Set Me Ablaze. KB introduced the song to us. We sang it for the first time today. When she talked to me about the song a few weeks ago, the first thought I had when she talked to me about the song was the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Two verses stick out to me in that story. The first is Exodus 3 verse 3. It says that Moses says, let me check out this amazing site. He's talking about the burning bush. Let me check out this amazing site and find out why the bush is not burning up. Two things. One, he stopped. Two, he questioned. He stopped his life and he questioned what he saw. Now watch what God says to Moses. Take off your sandals. Be respectful about what's going on around you stay a while. Moses slowed down. He became curious. He questioned. He listened. He heard. And he received a mission to go back into Egypt and deliver God's people. In essence, Moses was set ablaze because he slowed down and got close to the fire and stayed long enough to be ignited. Brandon, give me that slide. Moses was set ablaze because he slowed down, got close to the fire, and stayed long enough to ignite. Watch this. When you're trying to light a piece of wood, whatever that piece of wood is, log small piece of wood, whatever, you must hold that piece of wood to a flame long enough for that piece of wood to ignite if you have a source, a lighter, a match, a torch, whatever, and you just touch that piece of wood and move it, it doesn't light. You have to hold it long enough for that piece of wood to catch fire. You have to keep it close enough to the source for it to burn. You can't tweak it. You got to get radical. Many of us, we just got to move close to the flame and move away come in, we come out. We feel God's presence and we move. We sing a worship song and we leave. We hear a sermon like this and we say, yeah, you know what, I do need to make some changes and go back to the way we were. We've got to sit in it long enough that it ignites us. We've got to get close enough to God's presence and stay there long enough that our heart catches on fire. We've got to sit in truth long enough that the truth gets in us and changes us. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You've got to take a look at your life and say, I'm no longer tweaking things. I am making radical moves to change my direction. You can't tweak this. You've got to get radical. So let me give you three radical steps. If you want to leave, leave now. Okay? Okay? Three radical steps. Pastor Lance Witt says you've got to grab your calendar by the throat. You want to make changes in your schedule? You've got to grab your calendar by the throat. This is a radical move. You cannot merely look at your calendar and say, all right, I'll move this activity over here and that activity over there. Now I have time for other people as long as the other people are fine with me helping them from 2 o'clock to 3.30 on Tuesday afternoons. That's a tweak. That's not radically changing your life. That will never work. You have to be radical, which means you have to cancel some things. Just simply cancel them out of your life. Stop this, stop that, say no thank you, say no to that over there. You gotta take a pair of scissors to your calendar. It'll never change if you don't. Think about this, you would never leave your wallet on a table and say to the public as they pass by, hey, take out whatever you want and whatever's left, I'll give to my family. But that's exactly what we do with our calendar. Hey, fill it up. Tell me where to go, tell me meetings to go to, tell me things, activities. You fill up my calendar and whatever I have left over, I'll squeeze in my kid. I'll squeeze in my wife. I'll squeeze in my husband. I'll squeeze in some time off. You go ahead and take everything you want, wherever you want me to go, whatever I got to do, you fill it up, and then I'll look at the little parts that's not filled and I'll try to squeeze in what matters. No, you got to be radical. Tweaking your calendar is not enough. Number two, this is tough for us, especially in our culture, and it's very tough for me. You got to go slower. Slowing down is an intentional move. Life will not automatically slow down for you. Everything in our culture is about promoting speed, not slowing down. As a result, we have formed habits around being fast. Fast food, fast cars, fast computers, fast information, fast internet, fast everything. I notice this crazy way of thinking in me. A while back when I put something in the microwave and was frustrated that it took 45 seconds. Can't they make a more powerful microwave, you know? Can't we do this in five seconds? Why 45? But I remember when microwaves first came out. I'm dating myself. I remember when microwaves first came out. I was blown away that you could heat up food in like two minutes. Because before that, you had to put it in the oven and you had to wait 15 or 20 minutes. Now, 45 seconds. Hurry up. Form habits. We formed habits fast, 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 but yet the most beautiful and precious things in life arrive slowly. Love, babies, friendship, brisket, all the good things of life. Slowly, slowly. So we must intentionally slow down, break the cycle of speed, and learn the beauty of slowness. How? Here's some very simple things, hard but simple. Eat slower. Take the long way home. Drive behind the slow car rather than cuss them out as you try to get around them. Get in the slow line at the grocery market and just wait. Unless you're in an absolute emergency, unless you have got to get somewhere, just sit in the line, just stand in the line. Think, meditate, write some things down, make some notes, slow down because what you'll do is you'll look around to see the fastest line and you'll, you'll cut your, your entire thing by about two minutes by getting in another line, get to your van or car and then sit on Facebook for five and see if anybody's texted you or what's going on. Walk slower. Just walk slower. Sit around your house with no electronics and talk with your family. Tuck your kids in at night and read them a story. Read a book, not a summary, not listen to it on audios at double speed, read a book. Listen to an entire album of your favorite artist, not just the two songs you like and move on, listen to the whole album, enjoy the moment, listen to the whole thing. Revisit a movie that you like and watch it again. Hand write a letter to somebody. They actually still sell cards and envelopes and stamps and ink pens and all of that. The bail service picks up letters and still delivers them. Try that. You'll be absolutely amazed at what it will do for someone to get a handwritten letter or a card by you. Call a friend. Not just text them. Call them. Take time and speak with them on the phone. Journal. Pray. Meditate. Meditate. You have to be radical to defeat the monsters of speed and hurry and fast living. A tweak won't do it. Last one, too simple. Very closely connected to the second one, but a little bit different. Most people in our modern world live complex lives. We live complex lives. If you don't think so, sit down with someone much older than you And talk with them about how their life was when they were children. You will see how much more simple life was years ago. Now, when I say simple, I don't mean easy. They didn't have an easy life. Your grandparents did not have it easy. Your parents, for many of you, did not have it easy. Their life was anything but easy. But it was simple. It was less complex, less layered. Because everything is available today 24-7 at the push of a button, we are more confused about what we want today than ever before. There is less clarity, less confidence, less certainty. Everything is questioned, everything is suspect, and that creates anxiety. More choices do not make people happier. In fact, research shows more choices create less satisfaction within people. Why? Because we live in a constant state of paralysis by analysis. We have so many choices, so many opinions, so many variations, so many options, we're not sure anymore. Whatever we pick, we then wonder, did I pick the right thing? Maybe I should have got the other one. Maybe I should have got that. We see somebody on Facebook who chose something else, and they seem happier than we do. And we're like, why didn't I pick what they got? We live in a constant state of uncertainty. We rarely know anything for sure. We merely accept what is, but we hardly ever say, I did good, or I made the right choice. I'm pleased with the outcome. Folks, nobody's going to change that for you, and our world isn't changing You're the masters of your own calendar in your world. You gotta slow it down. No one will slow it down for you. You wanna be different? Change it. How? Two quick thoughts. Go deep rather than wide. Get a few good books and read them five times. Instead of reading 30 books, read one over and over again. Get everything you can out of it. Go deep rather than wide. Get a few movies and watch them again and again. Get a few friends and invest all you have in just one or two friends. Keep a simple menu. Read a chapter of the Bible every week. Rather than trying to read a lot, read one chapter a week. Go long rather than short. Stay in the game. Don't bounce. Don't quit. Keep working, keep investing, keep loving, keep serving, keep trying. Don't fall, for it's better on the other side of the fence. No, it's not. Go long rather than deep, rather than short. Speed causes us to miss what's most important. Slow down so you can see and enjoy life. Peace, joy, purpose, mission, Love are found when you're slow. So here are the two questions you've got to wrestle with. One, where am I going too fast? Only you can answer that question. Well, let me change that. Maybe your wife or your husband or your kids could help you answer that question. Sit down with them and say, you know, maybe start thinking in that sermon today, where do you think I'm going too fast? do you have a hard time catching me? Are we, are we just passing each other? Are you going so fast and I'm going so fast that basically we're blurring one another? Ask your kids, parents. Parent, kids, ask your parents where you're going too fast. Where am I going too fast? And the second question is, how will I slow down? I can't tell you. You've got to figure that out. Where am I going too fast? How will I slow down? Let's pray. Father, as I read through the Gospels, I'm amazed at how much Jesus accomplished. And he never seemed rushed, he never seemed running anywhere. He took time to interact with people, to look them in the eye, to ask them questions, to answer questions. Time to go to a friend's home. Time to meet a need in a person's life. Father, we live in such a fast-paced world today. Every commercial, every uh, thing we see on social media, talking with people, how are you doing? I'm just so busy. Everybody's running, and everybody's busy, and everybody has more to do than they can possibly squeeze in. And, Father, as a result... I think we're hurting our families, we're hurting our friends, we're hurting ourselves. Our souls were not designed to live in a blur. We were designed to live grateful lives. We were designed to live reflective lives. We were designed to live prayerful lives. We were designed to live in healthy relationships, and relationships cannot form in a hurry. So, Father, I pray that you will speak into our lives, and you will point out some things, some areas where we need to... We're going to take some radical moves. Slow our parents down so they can enjoy their children. Slow slow husbands and wives down so they can build their relationship. Slow us down so we can love our neighbors and love our friends and be the kind of people you've designed us to be. Thank you for this reminder and this challenge today. And we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. I hope that you were encouraged and challenged today. I know not only is it a struggle for me as a pastor and a human to work at a fast pace, live life at a fast pace, but I often found my prayers asking God to move quicker and do things faster in my life. So I hope as we reflect on how to slow down, we see that the more we slow down, Uh, the more we're tuning and pacing our hearts and our souls in the pace that God is moving, and it allows us to be closer to Him. Two quick announcements we'll give you before we let you go. Number one is if you're new here or you've been coming for a while and we've yet to connect with you, we'd love to get to know you better. Uh, Fill out a new here card. It should be in the seat back in front of you. If you take that and go to the new here area, we have a gift for you. You can also do it virtually by going to fplive.org slash connect. Whether you do it physically, virtually, doesn't matter. Go to the New Here area after service um, and just get a gift, and that's a place to ask questions. If you want to know more about who we are, what we do, what we offer, uh, go there. We have plenty to give you as far as answers to your questions. And if you have kids in KidVenture and you're like, I don't have time to go get my kid and go over there, there are new here gifts on the black table in the corner as you go into the KidVenture Auditorium. So if you're new here and you don't have time to stop by, you can always grab a gift on that table on your way to KidVenture. Number two, last thing, is uh, we are in our 21 days of prayer and fasting. If you're new here, this is your first time, we are just finishing day or week two today. So this next week is our last week, and I hope that as you've committed to helping and being a part of it. you found God answering your prayers and connecting to you in a way that maybe you wouldn't have through prayer and fasting. And if you're like, hey, I've not even done this. It ends next Sunday. What's the point? Hey, trust me, it is better to fast for seven days than to not do anything at all. So we hope if you haven't uh, been with us in our fasting time, you would consider this week just joining us for our last week. We have video devotions that go out every morning to kind of encourage you through our reading together as a body of believers. If you're not getting those emails or those video devotions sent to you, find me after service. We'll sign you up for it. want to remind you one thing though. We are ending our 21 days of prayer and fasting next Sunday, but we are closing out by celebrating together next Tuesday, not this Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, January 30th. 7 to 8 p.m. here at Forest Park that Tuesday night, we're having something we call Sanctuary, and that is an acoustic worship night where we come in, we'll sing some acoustic worship songs, have a time of prayer, we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and really reflect and have people talk about their experience in this 21 days of prayer and fasting. So, if you're interested in any of that, you can go to the New Here area. We have guides to give you, answer all your fasting questions. We encourage you, whether you're participating or not, to come to Sanctuary January 30th. It'll be a great time just to be together as a family of believers. So, God, thank you so much for being here. I hope you stay warm, and I hope more than anything, you root for anyone but the Chiefs today. Have a great Sunday.